There's a child named Dax Locke. He lived in Illinois. He lived in Washington, Illinois, a town of a little under 15,000 people. At a young age, Dax uh, knew he had some illnesses in his life. He had been uh, diagnosed with an acute and rare form of leukemia. So at a young age, he went through two different bone marrow transplants, and still it didn't seem to be helping. He got, his parents got a call in October just a couple of years ago that Dax probably wasn't going to make it more than four to six weeks. So it was October of that year, so the parents thought, if we're not going to have Dax for Christmas, then we're going to have Christmas early this year. So in October, they set up their Christmas tree and their lights and bought presents, and every day Dax would open a different present leading up to Christmas. Now let me pause right there. Let me just ask, how many of you set up Christmas before November 1st? A show of hands. Anybody here? You, do you break the November 1st barrier? Most of you are, I guess, post-November 1st people. How many of you still have Christmas stuff up? Anybody here today? Yeah, okay, all right, a few of you. They set up Christmas in October because they knew they weren't going to have Dax much longer. And then they decided to take one more big family vacation just to have an adventure with Dax. So, Dax, so when they went away, all their neighbors knew what was happening. They knew why this family had set up Christmas lights and put up their Christmas tree. So they decided that while Dax and his family were away, they were going to do the same thing. So they decorated their homes with Christmas lights and Christmas trees. And they put a 20-foot Christmas tree in Dax's backyard. And then it caught on, not just in the neighborhood, but across that whole town of Washington, Illinois. They started celebrating Christmas in October of that year. You can see some of the images on the screen, what some of these yards look like. So when Dax and his family came back from vacation, they pull into the neighborhood and there are all these lights about uh, Merry Christmas and with Dax's name on them. And what people thought was, if Dax isn't going to make it to Christmas... We're going to bring Christmas to Dax. And I shared this story a few years ago. And I shared it leading up to Christmas in an Advent season because it works really well there. I mean, just the story of if you can't make it to that point, we have a God who came to meet you where you are. And, and I love being able to preach that kind of message. Yet this was a story that kept coming to me leading up to this day. Because when it came to Dax... And how that town of 15,000 people rallied around Dax to celebrate Christmas early. Like, it didn't matter what kind of walk of life people were in. That day, that season, it didn't matter who you voted for. There was a child that was in need of kindness and love. It didn't matter if you cheer for SEC or Big 12 or Big 10. It didn't matter if you were a, a meditarian or a vegetarian. It's like everybody agreed, here's a child who is in need of love and kindness. You see this right here in our city. How people support St. Jude or Laboner and some of these efforts. Memphis has more nonprofits in any city in the nation. And so many of the nonprofits here in our city, here in the 901, they, they reach out to the next generation. We have eight strategic partners in the life of our church, partners throughout the 901. Seven of the eight, you can argue that seven of the eight in some way are pouring into the next generation because when it comes to the next generation and when it comes to children, people can set differences aside to unite around a cause. They're in need of kindness, of love, of mentorship. So I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. And I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. I want to welcome those who are here in person. It's great to see you. Welcome those who are online. Thank you so much for participating in our worship time today. 
We're in a seven-week series right now that we have called One Love. And what we are doing is taking seven weeks to unpack the greatest commands by Jesus that are mentioned in Mark chapter 12. It's the response to a question. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, their teachers of the law, a teacher of the law, comes to Jesus because there are some people in Mark chapter 12, they're trying to catch Jesus and things he could say so they could arrest him and hopefully do away with him, yet nothing seems to be working. So this guy comes up and he says, Jesus, what's the greatest command? And I've told you the last few weeks, like there are hundreds of commands, over 600 of them in the Old Testament. There, you have the Ten Commandments, so there are ten Jesus could have chosen from, a lot of different commands. Yet just like that, Jesus responded with the greatest commands. He says, the first and the greatest command is this, and it's known in Judaism as the Shema. The Shema means to hear or to listen. So it's hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, the second command isn't, second command right after that is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that first command, I think everybody around, all the opponents of Jesus would have heard that. They would have heard the first command and they would have been able to shake their heads in agreement. Like, yeah, that is the greatest command. But it's the second command that helped get Jesus killed. Love your neighbor as yourself. People didn't live with that kind of ethic. So this is Jesus' response. It's known as the Shema. It's recited by Jews up to this day. This has gone on for centuries where twice a day when Jews wake up and when they go to bed at night, they recite the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus added, extended the, the, the Shema to also include love your neighbor as yourself. This was how Jesus, this rooted Jesus every day of his life. This wasn't like his word of the year. I know some of you choose like a word of the year. My mom does this. Even if my family doesn't choose to have a word of the year, we have to tell our mom, my mom what the word of the year is because she wants to pray a word of the year over us. And some of you may choose, this year I want to focus on the word hope or courage or anchor. And this wasn't just a word of the year for Jesus. This is from birth. Jesus has been taught this. Like he heard his mother recite the Shema. I don't know how old Joseph was or how long Jesus had Joseph on the earth, but he had heard his, his earthly father recite the Shema. It rooted him, grounded him, reminded him of mission, of purpose. The Shema for Jews for years and for Christians today, the greatest commands of Jesus, the Shema. This has served as counseling, encouragement, marriage advice. This is the best way to parent. Like this is... This is everything we need for life. There's no area of your life that is not in need of the Shema. There's no area of your life the Shema doesn't want to impact. Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. This was antibiotic, probiotic, vitamin. This was preventive care. This was counseling for anybody in need of healing. Like the Shema is what people, it was ingrained in them. It's the foundation that they stood on. It was encouragement. It's how they went about everyday life. I don't just want to recite this. I want to live into it. So for Jesus to respond so easily to this, uh, this, this question, this is the greatest command. This is how Jesus prayed. And how Jesus prayed impacted the way he lived. And how Jesus lived was a reflection of the way Jesus would pray. Isn't this how it's supposed to work? That our prayers are what we're trying to live out in our lives. I spent a lot of time with uh, preachers, pastors, church leaders, and uh, for, for many preachers I know, they go into a preacher lull every Sunday night. That's when it happens. And it's not that there's so much negativity or criticism coming at them or at us. It's that every Sunday night, there's this little preacher lull of 
the message I preached this morning, am I trying to live this out of my life? Like whatever it is I talked about, the radical grace of God, the unfathomable love of God, how God wants us to be God's people in the world, like am I trying to live this out in my life? For Jesus, how he prayed is how he lived. How he lived was a reflection of how he prayed. And this came straight from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We've kind of quoted, I've quoted a little bit. Uh, we've referenced it, but I want to just walk through about 10 verses in Deuteronomy 6. Because when Jesus responds with the Shema in Mark chapter 12, everybody around him would have known where this came from. They wouldn't have been asking, you know, did Jesus just quote the book of Psalm or Nehemiah or Isaiah? Everybody would have known. It, was, it came from Deuteronomy. Straight from Deuteronomy. And here's, here, here's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk, walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Let me pause right there and just look at that. If you're able to see the screen, if you're just listening right now uh, online, I just want you to know, like in this, it talks about impressing this on your children. Like anywhere you go in life, like this is discipleship at its best, where it's not just talking about here's what you do in the synagogue or here's what you do in the church. It's as you go about life. This needs to be able to roll off your tongue. This needs to be in your mind. It needs to be embedded inside of your heart. Like this is who God is calling you to be. And this is what you impress on your children. And this is, Deuteronomy 6 isn't just written to uh, parents, to moms and dads or families. This isn't like trying to strengthen a family system. Deuteronomy 6 is written to the people of God. It's not just a mom's responsibility to impress this on your children. It's the community of faith's responsibility to impress these truths upon our children, upon the next generation. And then the very next verse, in verse 8, it talks about you tie them as symbols on your hands and you bind them on your foreheads. You write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And you may read that and think, is it literal? Like, are we really supposed to do that? Yeah, there have been Jews for centuries who've done something like this, where they find ways to have the Shema on their bodies, on their heads, on their wrists. And, and you probably do this in some ways that you don't even know that, like you may be getting this from Deuteronomy 6, but we hang scriptures sometimes in our houses or pieces of art that we, wanna, we want to cause us to reflect upon a little bit. Like when you leave a house or maybe a scripture or you walk into a living room and there's something that you want that to be a place dedicated to God. For my family, uh, uh, we haven't done it as much recently, but there are a lot of days that when we begin our days, we write a cross on our right hand. All four of us are right-handed. So right there by the thumb, by the index finger, we, we draw a cross. Because uh, anything we do that day, you can see it. Like if you're uh, typing, texting, you know, writing with a pen, playing video games, and then when, even when you like point to like blame somebody or you're upset, even when you point, there it is. There is the cross. And we want that to be right in front of us to help shape the kind of people we are, remind us of the people we are. And Deuteronomy 6 talks about like, hey, you make sure you put this in front of you to where you bump into it in your everyday life, that this is reminding you of who God, who God wants you to be. 
And then you get this in verse 10. Listen to this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, the Shema is not given to people who have already gone through the wilderness and have arrived at a new place and have developed their own cities. The Shema is given to a bunch of people who have just come out of slavery who are on their way to freedom. The Shema is not given to people who have arrived in a new place. It's given to people who are on the way to a new place. Like they are learning what it means to be free people. Some of God's greatest commands and greatest principles in life are not waiting for you to arrive to receive them. They are given to you, given to you while you are on this journey of trying to live into a new kind of freedom in your life. And then you get just these little nuggets of, of wisdom, nuggets of truth that play out in Deuteronomy 6. If you go to that next slide, stuff like be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. It's like here is the Shema, the greatest command. And you need to live this out in every part of your life. Do not forget it. The greatest command of God is to be a foundation we build our lives on, It's supposed to grow us into maturity. It's supposed to be handed on to the next generation. And it's all of our responsibility to do that. One of the seven or one of the eight core values in the life of our church is that we strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. But we're going to focus a month of April on this core value. This is one of our core values. We strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. Because, I mean, we talk about this a lot, and you know it's true. That we live in a time where the best narrative wins. The best story wins. When it comes to who people and what they want to invest their life in, the best story wins. And when it comes to living out the good news, when it comes to living out the gospel in our lives and in the life of a church, it's good for us to acknowledge that we are bumping up against multi-billion dollar enterprises. The challenges to the gospel are all around us. The challenge of the gospel is bumping up against multi-billion dollar uh, entertainment industry, multi-billion dollar technological technology industry, bumping up against multi-billion dollar cable news industry, where there are countless stories and narratives vying for our attention, our adoration, and our allegiance. We've got to make sure that what we're handing on to the next generation is more compelling than what any of those other things have to offer. That we're embodying everything Jesus has asked us to be about. So here are three things I want you to think about. This is a new, what we call a Sunday for us of new arrival blessing. And we've decided to move forward with this day. So today we're going to be celebrating 13 families in our church who have had a new arrival. A COVID baby or an addition to their family over the last year. It's going to be a little different than years of the past. But this is an important day. Not just for the families who have had new arrivals. For our whole church, we're all in this together of what it means to impress on the next generation, to give them a compelling story to live into. Let me give you just a few things to consider, a few truths, a few principles, uh, a few challenges. The first one is this. The focus begins with yourself, not on others. When it comes to pouring into the next generation, it's it, before we pour into them, we have to allow God to pour into us. The greatest gift that any of you have to give to the next generation is the gift of sitting with God, letting God pour into you. 
I usually get this reminder when I, uh, whenever I fly and the flight attendants are giving you all the instructions and then they get to that part where it's in the case of um, a change in oxygen, per, uh, air pressure, masks are going to come out of the ceiling. Make sure you put one on yourself before you help anyone else. Put one on yourself before you help your own children, before you help a neighbor. And I think it's so true for us too. You've got to make sure that you are allowing God to pour into you or we got nothing to give the next generation or anyone else. The second thing is this. Pouring into the next generation is not just about meeting them where they are. It is pulling them up to where we are. This is discipleship at its best. Discipleship isn't just meeting people where they are. It's that we want to help meet people where they are and then help move them to where it is God wants all of us to be, a place of maturity and development. Now, with that said, let me take a moment because hopefully sometime throughout 2021, there are going to be more in-person gatherings and events and a nursery will begin to open and children's worship and children ministry events. And, and we need you, some of you, to commit to meeting people where they are. We're going to need volunteers. We're going to need people who can help staff certain ministries. And I know some of you may be real hesitant to do that. But as we begin to reopen, we're going to need people who are willing to meet children and meet people where they are. We need some of these volunteers. So uh, you may think that that isn't for you, but let me just put it like this. If you love God, you will help out, all right? <clears throat> if you love God, you're going you're gonna to help invest. But when it comes to caring for the next generation, we need people who are willing to meet them where they are, to get down on their level. But discipleship always has an expectation of helping to pull people up to where God wants all of us to be, a place of development and maturity. So here, here's sometimes how this plays out. We... We'll pray this morning for new arrivals, for the day to come in their lives when they will confess Jesus as the Lord of the life and when they will be baptized into Christ. We want the salvation of God to come upon all people, especially those we're praying over today. One of the best ways to invite the next generation into baptism and to commitment to God is for them to see us model our own baptisms and commitment in our own lives. They don't just need an invitation. They need an embodiment of people who are trying to live this out. And last but not least, what I want to lay in front of you is this. If you go to that next one. Is to be known by the hope we carry, not the fears we carry. I mean, it seems that we see Christians all over the place, all over our nation right now, who are known more by all of their fears than they are by all of their hopes. Fears dominate. Cable news, fears, fears dominate so much of our culture right now. We're called to be known by what we hope in, not what our fears are. By how we're trying to live out love, not how we give in to different forms of hate. The Shema's foundation for us, its mission for us, its maturity, it's what we hand on to the next generation. So I want to invite Anna to come and join me just for a moment. Anna and I are going to have a, a brief little conversation, and then I'm going to hand it over to her. Anna's a, our children's minister here, and I'm so glad uh, that, I, and I think it was maybe November when I said, hey, okay, this whole new arrival thing, you know, should we do it? Should we not do it? And you're like, no, we've got to do it, which I'm so glad. We don't, we don't ever want to skip this. This is one of my favorite days in the life of our church. I know Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. I know this has impacted your life and your ministry in a lot of ways. 
So do you mind sharing with us just for a moment the impact this has had on your life and your ministry? Yeah, when I was in college at ACU studying children's ministry, this passage really captured my heart and my imagination because I knew that I wanted my children's ministry to not be just babysitting, and I didn't want it to be just big, flashy productions, but I wanted it to be about the formation of the whole child, heart, mind, body, and soul. And I also realized it has to be ingrained in every aspect of their lives, and the walking and sitting and standing and lying down and waking up. So it has to be a partnership between the parents and the church and they both need each other. And I think that's been especially made clear this past year, and we haven't been able to have Bible class and do activities we usually do. It's been so much on the parents, and we as a church have been trying to think of all the ways we can to come alongside these parents and walk with them in that and support them, and it's going to be needed even more going forward. And another part that I love about this passage is when it says, when your children ask, tell them. And you hear that a lot in Deuteronomy, and kids love to ask questions, and I'm sure sometimes the questions get a little draining, but I love that that is an intentional thing in the Bible for the adults that are telling them the answers to remember what God has done and his faithfulness. And I know that when I teach kids, I learn just as much from them um, as they learn from me, and we're all on this journey together, so... Yeah, so Anna, I know, I know this is, can be a hard day for some people. Maybe some folks who were here in person or virtually or those who will listen to the podcast later on. And sometimes it's like new arrival day. I just, I just don't want to come. And there are those even right now who are hanging on, but there are a lot of different emotions in this day. Do you mind just kind of speaking into that, like how this can be a hard day for some people and what's a word for them today? Yeah, I'm glad we're taking a moment to speak into that. I've been doing New Arrivals Blessings for like nine years, and only until the past couple years had I really stopped to think about the people that this is bringing up um, hurt and pain in their lives. And I think that's because I started to feel a little bit of that hurt and the longing for a family myself. And I knew friends that were walking through difficulties with infertility and miscarriages. And so I just know there's a lot of emotions going into this day. Um, And a good reminder for myself is that we can hold that pain at the same time as holding joy um, from the Lord and for other families as we celebrate. And it's also really important that I never want to leave the impression that we're elevating being a, a, a spa, having a spouse and having kids is like the ultimate goal in a Christian's life. Right. The goal is discipleship. And our core value of giving the next generation a compelling story to live into, there's not a caveat that that's just if you have kids. That's for all of us to be a part of that, like the whole community of Israel rallying around those families. Um, That's all of our job. And so on a day like today, um, just acknowledging that pain and knowing that God loves you and God is with you. And and there's going to be a calling for you to somehow engage with these families and the different generations in our church. Yeah, so, so well said. And we do usually take a moment for a new rival day or I even think about like Father's Day or Mother's Day. There's just a lot of emotions that we, we try, to give, try to give voice to. So thank you for how well you articulated that. I'm about to step off the stage and give it to you. I'm going to give you one more question. 
uh, just what excites you the most about New Arrival Day? I mean, I shared in first service, but I've had a few people uh, inside the church and even some minister friends who have asked me recently, like, Josh, what do you miss most about, like, pre-COVID, like, being able to pastor and, like, care for people? And to, to me, like, praying over people, like, being able to place a hand on shoulders, I mean, so many Sundays we would be doing that up front. But one of them for me is being able to go into hospitals and pray for newborns, like pray for newborns and families. I miss not being able to do that. So I'm so glad we're doing this day. Before this question, I just want to remind people, uh, those in person or online, we have a connect card on our website. If you want to go to sycamoreview.org, it has a number of ways we can care for you, and you can let us know how we can care for you. And for those in person, we will have an elder available out this room to the right after our service to receive you for prayer, anything we can do for you.